Welcome to the Chalk Up Podcast, where we'll explore professional coaches and athletes' mindsets, philosophies, experiences in the world of strength and conditioning. Cool. Fantastic. Right then, guys, good morning and uh, hello, Jim. Hi, Ollie. How are you, pal? You right? Yeah, not bad, not bad. And today, guys, we've got uh, Josh Fletcher. How you doing, mate? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me, boys. Yeah, no problem. So, guys, we've got a great episode today. Okay, Josh has uh, some serious uh, knowledge and experience behind him, so uh, we'll get into it. Uh, Josh, if you could just give us like a little overview of um, what you've been through, a bit of uh, your experience for us. Well, geez, I don't know if it would be little. Um, <laughs> so, I've, I've been strength and conditioning coach slash performance coach, whatever title you want to put on it, for about 12 years now. So, I guess my, my journey started as a failed rugby player. Like, I, I had everything required physically, but I had like hands like cow's tits. So, I was never <laughs> going to make it as a, as a pro rugby player of any sort. Um, I started in the personal training side because I always felt like well, in fact, I started out as a fitness instructor and then I moved into a fitness manager, personal trainer. Mm. And I got into the whole training people side of things because I remember I was about 10 years old and I saw Britney Spears's, uh, Britney Spears's personal trainer on TV. And I thought, oh my God, look at, this, look at the shape this guy's in. And then obviously he's training Britney Spears. That's what I want to do. Um, so yeah, once I started actually personal training when I was a little bit older, I realized it wasn't all like that. But that's where the journey started. And then I kind of moved into the athlete side of things. I moved from uh, internship with EIS to a paid role, from a paid role to rugby, professional rugby, professional rugby to India, and then India to Romanian Special Forces, Romanian Special Forces to um, kind of where I am now, which is working with Hinsa, Hinsa Performance as a doing some corporate work and also with a with a driver, Formula yeah. Two driver, and also just set up my own company called the Career Blueprint. So that's like a real whistle stop tour, but I'm sure we're going to dig into some of those a little bit more. So yeah, yeah, and through. is uh, we're still waiting on Britney Spears uh, confirmation? Yeah, well, she's that, yeah. she's she's due to respond, but she keeps. <laughs> Like, I don't know, block, I'm blocked or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right then, so um, going back to the start with your personal trainer days and then moving into that fitness manager, what sort of learnings do you take from doing that sort of general role that you can still use in your day-to-day sort of more experienced life now? Is there still yeah. taking like takeaways that you're still using? What that did is set the foundation and, and I was really quite, I can only really reflect back on it now. I was really methodical about what I wanted to do. Mm. And, and I was very structured in the way that I knew that I only wanted to be a personal trainer at that point in my life. So I didn't, I wasn't in any rush to progress past that. Yeah. So I went through every single step that I thought there was that was going to make me a better trainer. Um, so I decided that I was going to pay, I was going to be a fitness instructor first. I got offered three four personal training jobs straight off the bat because how old, how old were you there uh 22 23 okay it's quite young and i, and I got i had a degree so they just offered me these personal trainer jobs off the bat yeah um and i kept turning them down and i said no i want to be a fitness instructor and everyone said why do you want to do that because it's going to make me a better trainer mm. um and, and i i got a fitness instructor job got paid about nine grand or something and was doing all the the jobs that you do you do um, and I did that but, and, I, and I said, I promised myself, I'll give this a minimum of one year, one year. Um, and I gave it a year 
I got to about nine months in and the guy, I kept getting offered personal training jobs over and over. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, but I watched and I learned and I listened to all the trainers, what they were doing, what they weren't doing, how they were selling, how they were picking up clients, how they were losing clients, all of these different things. And I, and I learned a hell of a lot. I, I actually then got offered a fitness manager job. And I, and I said, well, what's this going to do for me? How's this going to make me a better personal trainer? And he said, I said, I'm only going to do this if you put me through all the sales courses that you send your business guys on. So he then put me on all the sales courses and I learned a lot about that side of things and opens up, opened up a whole new world. And then when, when I'd done that for another, oh, my salary went from nine grand to 18, um, which was, which is pretty nice. Um, then I had learned everything I had to learn by about 18, 18 months in that job. So, yeah. so I really took my time. And I was finally ready the, to make, in the fitness manager job. Is that yeah, fitness manager yeah. job? So I'd finally, I was finally ready to make the jump over to be a personal trainer then. And I did it at fitness first in, in city center Manchester. And um, what I they were doing a swap your rent for working hours, which which they often do. Okay. Um, or they said the rent money, I think at that point was like 360 quid. Um, and I had about 600 pounds in my bank that I'd saved from my previous job and that was enough to pay my rent in Manchester and the rent on day one for the month in fitness first so I went in and I said right we'd like to offer you the job like you know what shifts do you want to work and I said I'm not working any shifts I'm paying you 360 quid bang here's the money and I just went full guns blazing from day one Um, no plan b just straight in and within a week I'd earned that 360 quid within a month I'd like had a, a solid stable base. I paid all my rent, all my bills. And within two, three months, I crushed all their personal training numbers and everyone's looking to him, what the hell is this guy on? <laughs> and how many hours are you doing there? Well, by the end, by the time I, I got round to it, I was I was on about 40 or 50 hours. Um, and, you know, solid I was- Solid numbers, those are. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I, I just grafted and I was really methodical. I played it as a numbers game and I just had targets and- I targeted the times that no one else went for and I looked yeah. for the cash cows, um, which all these phrases and things I picked up from the sales courses and pre- prior to that. What it, what it really taught me though, is that like, I didn't, I didn't leave a stone unturned and I took every step there was in order to make sure that I could be the best possible trainer that I could be. So me, I didn't stumble upon 30, 40 clients or 30, 40, 50 hours a week. I, I, I did it because I'd taken all those steps before uh, it, it taught me a hell of a lot about uh, interacting with people like genuine people from a day to day. And it taught me a hell of a lot about patience and, and selling, which have been absolutely invaluable throughout my entire career. With, mm. with that, Josh, um, do you, how important do you think it is for young coaches or any coaches to keep moving on in their career and not getting stale like for like 20 years at one, 10 years at one job. Cause I know that one guy once told me, you know, would you rather have the guy who's been at one sport on one specific client and athlete base, or would you rather for 10 years, or would you rather have someone who's been here for two years, here for three years, here to two years learning and then picking up each one. Do you think that's quite an important role to do? Yeah, I think there's a personal choice and you get to choose when, you, when you're when you no longer learning something from a role yeah. um, and, and you can always continue to adapt as an individual and grow. Um, I've certainly had it where I could no longer 
learn anything from a job and I was giving more than I was receiving so it was time to leave and I have a bit of a bad habit of doing that actually where I where I I'm not getting anything out of it anymore but I'm still there and that's when things start to kind of spiral downhill with regards to your not necessarily the quality of what you're delivering but how much you're enjoying it and your fulfillment in a role so yes I think that everything has a bit of a shelf life from a professional it's like perspective the, it's like the learning process isn't it so once you've done you've reached your potential at this place it's like when's when do you when did you sort of know right now's the time to kick on and move on um I, I learned because I wasn't stimulated by it. I wasn't enjoying it. And I also learned very early on that, especially working with the personal training, I quit that because I wanted it more than they did. Yeah. I wanted them to be in better shape than they wanted to be for themselves. And I wanted to put, I put more effort in than they did often. Then I've seen that consistently. And it's one of my, my constant bugbears. Um, and that comes from being a failed athlete, I suppose. Um, you know, I see the people with the talent, but without the work ethic that and, and the mentality that I had. So yeah. that drives me nuts. I think that leads nicely into um, we want to talk about the road into working with the EIS. If you yeah. can explain what the EIS uh, to our listeners is for us. Yeah. So English Institute of Sport, I, I know it well, certainly back when I was there, um, it was essentially handling just about all of the elite training for their Olympic programs. Uh, Great Britain's Olympic programs and they had sports which were centralized in different locations around around the country and then they had mm. decentralized programs as well so that meant that um, the the sport wasn't focused in a certain area so the athletes were split up into little training pods throughout the throughout the country yeah so I, I suppose my my pathway into that came from that's probably an interesting story um I, I was personal training and I got in touch. I started training a life coach and I didn't have a clue what that was at the time. And he was just doing his NLP at the time. So neuro-linguistic programming. Um, he was doing his certifications and he said, I'll tell you what, what, you know, we got chatting. He said, what is it you really want? And I said, well, I, you know, and honestly, I think I, I want to work with athletes. So he said, well, okay, well, do you want to do a bit of a skill swap? Like you train me and I'll, and I'll do some coaching with you. I said, okay. I was open-minded to it. Um, and what the best way I can think to describe it is that he absolutely like NLP to shit out of me and just kind of like, it's, it's not brainwashing because it's, it's helping bring what I wanted from my subconscious to my conscious. Yeah. And he did this in such a profound way that within two weeks of the first session with him, I had quit my job as the personal trainer, probably taking home about 50K. Um, I had ditched my hot girlfriend. Well, I thought she was hot. She probably wasn't that hot, in all honesty. <laughs> um, I was living in a big pimping city centre flat in Manchester. So you got the comfortable living? Oh, I had the life. I was yeah. playing rugby, putting 25 hours a week into it, and I was absolutely like, I'm on the edge of like just about to earn some sort of money from it, although it's probably yeah. peanuts. Um, and, and I quit everything. I quit the whole lot to go and do an unpaid internship in Sheffield, where I ended up living with um, a bunch of football hooligans from the Sheffield United firm. And I'd come home from like a day, uh, I'd come home from a day of, of graft at the, at the EIS. Um, 
and there'd be like a, a pile of cocaine like uh, that high on the table you guys can't see this it's an audio but like um, <laughs> then like as high as my hand and his face is just covered in yeah it's, it's not protein powder <laughs> oh and and i just thought to myself what the what the hell have i done this is absolutely bonkers um i i, I turned up to eis i quit everything i just ditched the whole lot on and and then two weeks three weeks later bang there i was i was in sheffield following uh, following a dream to become a strength and conditioning coach. Um, yeah. And it took me, I got in, I, it took me five years to pay off the debts. Um, and I, I, I went there as just this absolute like sponge. And I just kind of, I was 26 at the time as well. And I, I just basically gave my entire life to that job. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, which maybe we'll touch on a little bit later, I didn't give it, I didn't re- retake it until I was about 31, 32. So, um, but yeah, I did an unpaid internship for about eight months. Um, yeah. I, I, I really needed, and I wanted the, the, a mentor who was just going to take hold of me by the, by the collar and just say, right, you need to do this, 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 this. So I was possibly a little bit naive because, because I didn't happen. Um, and is that during the internship? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, that didn't, that didn't take place. Um, so that's quite upsetting when you hear that because we've had other guys on, um, let's say for instance, Pete Burridge on our first podcast, you know, it's, he went into a professional rugby environment and it was, you know, he's seeking out for advice and all these guys are coming back saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. You've gone into this place and you're like, you didn't have it. So what did you do to um, overcome that? Yeah, well, I was, re- I was, you probably gathered from the, what I'd said about the personal training and maybe the, 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 what I'd given up to be there. I was relentless in what I did. I still yeah. put all of the hours in, but it was a little bit like fluffy and, and I was just whizzing around in all these different directions, um, just chucking a bunch of crap at the wall and hoping that some of it stuck, um, which I, I know we'll talk about later. That's part of the reason why I started a company um, because I, I needed direction. I needed yeah. more clarity and I needed to not waste anywhere near as much time and pick up anywhere near as many scars as I did in my early career because I didn't have the guidance so that kind of started the pathway as a, as a lone ranger in my career really um yeah. and not any bitterness I don't resent anything because ultimately I, I I was an adult and and I just felt like I had committed myself more than than people were committing to me if you like yeah um so yeah I then went I, I finished that internship and uh, I went over to uh, Manchester to interview for a job, the women's walk polo program. I didn't get that because I didn't have my UKSA at the time, but I got asked to interview for the men's or to just go for the men's job. There was no one advertising yeah. it or anything. They just said they wanted me. So that was, that was actually with an EIS contractor role. And I, I got given those contractor hours um, and Manchester EIS at that time was looking for a multi-sport coach as well. So I got given those hours but I, I got given those hours. And when I got told that I was kind of given the job, it was this bittersweet situation where basically they said, um, look, we know you've been over in Sheffield doing an internship, but we don't know what the hell you've been doing over there. Cause you don't know shit. Like, yeah. you don't, you know, next to nothing, like you're below intern level. Um, and, and, and we don't, I don't understand how it's possible that that can happen to someone who's been through an eight month program. And they actually they, said that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Full on tour into me. And I just went, Okay. Took, it, took it on the chin. Yeah, I took it on the chin, but I was still, I was still not brainwashed. I was still like, you know, no one's. You tell me I'm wrong, I'll prove you. You tell me I'm not good enough, I'll prove you I am. 
and yeah. and it was just that that intense mentality that I had. Um, so to fast forward on that story, like this guy, this guy has obviously we know about a carrot and a stick. Well, he, I at that particular point in my life and maybe in general I respond really well to a carrot uh, sorry a stick and he would just beat me with a stick day in day out okay no problem no problem no problem no problem well yeah eventually it does become a problem but prior to that I had to show him so one day I phoned him up like I, I kept cocking things up obviously because I was I, I, I didn't have the the educational background that most of the other guys at EIS had mm. um, but I had the people skills side from from the personal training and one day I just thought, you know what, like, um, I need to put more into this. So I had restarted personal training in order to pay my rent. They had given me about 11, nine hours of work uh, per week, which was about 20 pounds an hour. So whatever. Is this at the same time as doing the water polo? No, this was the water polo. This oh, okay. Was, yeah. So it was that. And then a little tiny bit of multi-sport on the side. And um, so the... I phoned him up one evening and said, look, I've, I've, I've quit the personal training and I'm going to commit all of the, all of my time up to about 60 hours a week because yeah. I need to still play rugby. I, I wanted to try and get back into rugby at that point. I said, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to come and work at EIS and I'm going to stay there full time. And I'm going to be there from whatever hour I need to be to whatever hour I need to go in order to, uh, improve as a coach because it's very clear to me that I'm not meeting your standards and um, and he was like uh, okay and it was like 8pm or something and I didn't give a shit what time of night it was I was just like right I've got to tell him this because he needs to know that I'm I'm into this yeah. he's like uh, yeah it's kind of like 8 o'clock can we talk about this tomorrow went, yeah but I just want you to know that um, so I would I would technically call that like quite an uh, aggressive way to deal with it, but also it was kind of like managing your manager in some ways, um, yeah. understanding and knowing that I wasn't up to scratch and that I was going to do something about it. So um, he just kind of said, "All right, didn't like no well done's no yeah, yeah good decision or any of this sort of stuff." He said, "You've got a lot of work to do." So he still carried on with the stick. Yeah, but then he showed with a carrot by bumping my hours up to 16 and then to 30, like within a week. So he had obviously gone, do you know what? This guy's like putting everything into it. He sacrificed or made choices. I don't like the word sacrifice because it's choice. Uh, he's made choices to make these changes and yeah. I'm going to reward him for that. And let's see how he gets on by, by going at it full time. Yeah. With the, you've got that obviously quite intense, uh, quite intense in your younger days with like how you were speaking to people like people around that sort of subject did you when you were coaching the athletes did you have that same like, in, like intense the athlete did you find that sometimes you had to hold back or were you quite good at changing and adapting around it yeah um i mean the the personal training you can't be like that no that's that's what i was trying so, to think you know the general with, pop wouldn't with, with the general the general population set me really well for athletes. Yeah. And um, I, I, I have always been all right at, at building relationships with athletes, sometimes to, to my fault. Um, and what I've, what I've kind of learned over time is that every single person on the ladder has their own agenda and you have to meet, you have to meet, understand and, 
you know, be able to fulfill that individual's agenda in order to be a success. If you miss anyone, you're going to fail at some point. So with, with regards to the athletes, I mean, we could use the rugby for an example. But at EIS, I actually, if we jump forward in that story, I, asked, I actually got asked to reapply for my own job, which again is yet another kick in the nuts. And I didn't get it. And at the time I thought I didn't get it because I interviewed like a moron. Well, it wasn't that. It was because I was never going to get it because the, the person who was going to be doing the hiring didn't like the, the type of relationship I had with the athletes. And that relationship was one where I was close with them, but they got the work done when they needed to get the work done. So he used to come and watch some sessions sometimes. And, and I had a group of kids. I'm not even kidding you. Like I had like six or eight podium potential Taekwondo athletes. And uh, I think, I think 80% of them had like behavioral slash ADHD type problems. So they were like, I'd be stood there and someone would just, I'd feel this over the top of my head and just feel like my hair just, just whiz around. And one of them would like kick the top of my head and I'd just turn around thinking, what the hell is that? So this guy was like five foot two, not even kidding you. Like he just jumped up (laughs) and I'm six foot three and they kicked the top of my head. I had them, they were doing backflips. They were doing parkour all around the gym and I was all right with it because when it was game time, right, in we go. switch the flip. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and they responded to that. They reacted to that. And because I gave them the leeway and allowed them to do certain types of things that, you know, I'm not there to tell them no. I'm, I'm there to kind of facilitate them to, to become a bit more professional. But he, he saw it and he was like, what the hell is going on here? This guy's just done a backflip over there in between his, in between his set of cleans. Like, what sort of, what sort of show are you running? But he, of course, he didn't have the nuts to come and tell me. He's a performance director. He didn't have the nuts to come and mm. tell me that, look, you, you probably need to have a look at your coaching. Because um, he sort of come over and he saw like, he probably saw chaos. But oh, in yeah. your way, it was controlled chaos. Because well, you, you could get the guys to train when they needed to train. This is just it. And this is, he sees a snapshot. Yeah. So, so my, that, that kind of made me create a new mentality towards my coaching, which is, you know what, if, if anyone in a position of authority ever came into this session and I wasn't there, what would their perception be? And that was something that I tried to instill into my interns from that point forward. So imagine you leave the room because that's what I had to do often. I was working out of three separate locations in, in the rugby job. So I had to leave the players unattended, like, for vast at least a third of the session I couldn't be in three places at once Mm. and at times the head coach would watch it walk in so I needed to create an environment to right the wrongs of my previous role if you like um and and become aware of the other agendas that people had so it was a big learning curve for me um but I guess that kind of moves on to the yeah I was um, was gonna say with tying this into like the challenges and the philosophies for Let's talk about this GB Polo team. Um, how, how old were they? Or was it men's? Was it? Yeah, so there's a men's program and mm. they were all of a similar age. I mean, I was like 26, 27 at the time and they were 18 to, I think the oldest was about 29. Yeah. So they were pushing for the games for London 2012 and and some really great lads. So is a, a great group of lads, but I mean, internationally, they weren't anywhere near like the rest of the world. Mm. And they, they, they probably, they wouldn't be afraid to admit it now on reflection, but they only really went to the games because they got a free pass and all GB teams did because yeah. of the home games. So they were quite aware of that, but equally, you know, they were being asked to be professionals and act like professionals when, when they had them, some of them were getting paid three grand. Yeah. 
And that was just that was just the way it is. It just wasn't a well-funded program. I and mean, that's not anybody's fault. It's just it wasn't a priority sport. Especially when the conditioning for those like water polo oh, yeah. lads is mad as well. I've done it a couple of times and the fitness is is something else, isn't it? I think the South Africans or Zimbabwe, are they quite good at it? Um, yeah, South Africa is yeah. all right. Mostly the kind of middle, middle east. Uh, sorry, middle east, eastern Europe. Yeah. So at the time, it was hungry. Uh, they were just absolutely killing everybody. Yeah. US got good at one point. Um, I think Brazil were all right. Um, yeah, it was, it was a while back now. So, so when it when it comes to the gym room, because obviously with GB and uh, swimming and water polo, you know, it's time in the pool is is essential. So then, time out of the pool. What's the challenges on getting the athletes in the gym stuff? Um, well, with the GB water polo players, that there was no challenge. They loved it, and yeah. that they were they were all for it, and they they were big into it. They were really grateful to have a coach. They were really grateful to be part of EIS. That and you know the the more the women's program had less um, teams to compete against so a higher chance of the medals. So they had a greater proportion of the money, which obviously created huge problems, but they didn't have EIS. They chose not to invest in EIS. They chose to go down a different route and everybody wanted EIS because they knew that the standard they were getting was, you know, supposedly quite high. Um, but the, the challenges that we had really was, wasn't to get them to do the work. They would do anything that was put in front of them. You know, we, we would, if they were, if we would wrestle, we would, we would do strongman, we'd climb ropes, we'd, we'd do, um, we'd squat, clean, you know, whatever, whatever we needed to do. Keeping it all it. functional. Yeah, whatever, whatever they needed to do, they were, they were up for doing it. The challenges we had, though, that it was all camp-based because it was, there was no standard of, of polo in the UK. Most of the players went abroad. And, and when they went abroad, they were left to their own devices and, and, and the club, the, the club's training program, they couldn't really do mine. So it, it was very much like a feast or famine for me. Like whilst they're away, the only thing I could do really is keep in contact via like email. And occasionally I'd manage to get them on a Skype call, but mostly they wouldn't bother. And just seeing how um, they're getting on. Yeah. And, and I, they, they started calling me Fiverr when I was there. And I thought, oh, Fiverr, is that because I'm advocating five fruit and veg a day? And they're like, no, it's because you're clearly bored in Manchester, sending about five <laughs> emails a day. <laughs> <laughs> and um like half of them, when they got back, they're like, look, mate, you need to stop sending emails. Like I've, I've actually just sent you straight to the spam. Um, and I was like, I'm supposed to be, your, I'm supposed to be your coach. <laughs> so but, I think with that, because so with the GB polo stuff, you had that uh, situation um, and the change from polo to rugby, you know, you've got to build robust athletes at the end of the day. And yes, water polo is a very physical sport in the pool. And then rugby is a very physical sport on field. And you do all this uh, robust testing battery and your elite grassroots stuff. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, I guess the the, the testing battery side of things was a lot, a lot of it was just a, a, a kind of straight steal from the EIS. Mm. Um, and then... So were they doing that in your intern or...? Yeah, so EIS had, had like a, a conditioning assessment and okay. conditioning kind of from a, a tissue tolerance type conditioning rather than a, a metabolic side of things. Um, and they were really just looking at uh, overall uh, slash general conditioning of, let's say, trunk from multiple angles. It would be um, horizontal pulling, horizontal yeah. pushing, 
you know, just the, the, the standard and the set movement patterns. And then there might be some sort of functional movement screen alongside that, which has to be adapted because one coach, 30, 42 players, you know, doing like a full something like an FMS just isn't going to, you're not going to be able to uh, you know, have the time to do ages, it. Wouldn't it. Yeah. So um, we just had to find ways to do it. And, and, and I would film everything and I would get an intern to manage it and I would have like three stations set up so that the guys could do three overhead squats or something like that and then move on to um was it like three inline lunges and then three shoulder um shoulder range uh record all of it and then that was their assessment done then they would come inside and they'd go through one by one by one the um the conditioning assessment but over time I learned that you know with that number, I wouldn't. I would never do it again. I'm just I about to, to ask that. Yeah, because obviously a lot of people do all these assessments and tests, but it's completely, you know, it's not even valid or reliable if you're not going to re- retest it. Is it? It's got to be relevant, it's, doesn't yeah. it? It's yeah. got to be retested. I, I tried so many different things. Yeah. I, and in all honesty, like as the the age old saying goes, um, you want to make your your monitoring, your testing. So the most valuable thing I ever like Rotherham had nothing like they used to call me the milkman because yeah they, I've come out got some nicknames a, haven't you yeah I have yeah, <laughs> I've got, I've got the milkman <laughs> they used to call me the milkman because all the equipment that we had <clears throat> we were unwanted guests at EIS and Sheffield not the EIS gym but the leisure centre side yeah so we were very much unwanted guests and, and I used to wheel everything around in a big milk uh, crate um, and so we had and I'd lock it up and like sometimes people would hide the milk crate from me just for just for banter, <laughs> and I'd be running around like, "Where's the milk crate? Where's the milk crate?" Crazy um, milkman. <laughs> yeah. So, so we had this little space um, around the back. They'd put us out the way behind in the shop, put nets, and um, and we used to open up the milk crate and get out whatever kit we had. Um, and we had a jump mat. It was like I said, one of the best things we ever bought. And um, I did count movement jump and and drop jump and. Yeah. Most most of the boys didn't want to drop jump after a while because it was after a warm up. They played rugby at the weekend. If they said their spine was going to shoot out the top of their head, so they didn't want to do it. Um, fair enough, no problem for me. But they love the counter movement jump. Um, yeah, and it's still and, such a good movement. Well, the, the, you know the really interesting thing because I actually used it for two and a half years, and I did my master's thesis on it um, on the difference between subjective and objective measures to try and figure out kind of neuromuscular fatigue but it wasn't really that um on reflection um the the drop jump became useless because not many people would do it and there had too many people drop out but the ones who did had great improvements and it was really sensitive to fatigue but the the counter movement jump you know you can you can gain a lot from in terms of understanding how well your program is going and yeah. i could actually predict based on how long somebody had played type of match it was I could predict the amount of rest they'd had, if they'd had days off, where the program was. For the vast majority, I could kind of predict whether they were going to PB or not on a certain day and, yeah. you know, wh- which day of the week it would be and, and based on the type of training that we'd done that week. And, and I got pretty accurate with that over the weeks. Um, and the backs were especially sensitive to it. It was, it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think... Um... Then coming on to, you know, yes, you've done your, done an internship and learning from the intern that you did, you didn't have as much uh, exposure to other coaches helping you, let's say. Now it's your turn in taking interns on. 
what do you look for in mindset and attitude and what do you sort of give back to them that you didn't get? Yeah. So there's the, if the question is what did I look for, then that's vastly different to what I do look for now. Mm. What I did look for was a carbon copy of me. And that was obviously totally wrong. I wanted someone to commit as I committed because I wanted to give them everything I didn't have. And I always ensured that I gave 100% to these guys and the early interns like will that, that I've worked with. I think uh, one of them's now the, the head of Swiss rowing. Uh, another one mm-hmm. is head, head of Manchester university. Another one's ahead of uh, Moulton college. Um, yeah, I know that one. Someone else is, one of them is now up at the Scottish Institute of Sport, um, head of the, or head maybe, or full-time with the curling program. So anyway, there's a, there was a bit, a bunch of them. And I, I was just super intense. I was far too intense. And I just, my expectations were like up here. And, and instead of saying, these are the expectations, you must meet them while you're out. I said, these are the expectations, but here's your pathway to get there. And I supported them in every single avenue that they ever went down. Um, out of, out of nine guys who went for their UKCA, seven passed the first time. Um, that was because of the mistakes that I had made with my UKCA. I think I flunked it two or three times. Um, mm. I made sure that they didn't fall into those traps and I, I prepared them like probably more than they ever wanted. Um, but, you know, the stats kind of speak for themselves from that perspective. A lot of things like I, I did wrong um, and I was quite like, this is the only pathway. This is what you have to do. But, you know, of course, that's not the way, that's not the way it is right now. Um, my mentality is much more related to kind of the, you need a, you need to come to me and, and I'm right then back then I was like the, the way I like to think of it now is now I'm the steering wheel. They're the vehicle, they're the car, they're the engine, they're everything. And I'm just the steering wheel or the GPS. Yeah. Back then I was like trying to be the whole thing, just shoving them along um you know and and some responded to that and some didn't and the ones that responded to that they they've really excelled and the ones that didn't they they kind of got churned out of the back yeah um but i wouldn't change it now because it's given me the skills to be able to coach and mentor a little bit more effectively um in a more bespoke manner and a, a lot more of a um helping them to identify what they need to work on by working on things like self-awareness and their communication skills and and things like career periodization, favoring those over a scattergun approach of you need this, 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 and the really methodical way. I I really understand now that the way that I see my view of the world and the way that I communicate is not the same for everybody. My brain is, it's quite methodical and and i'm a i visualize things and and i i have a strict process for everything some people are more auditory some people are more feel kinesthetic they need to practice and and i totally understand that now so yeah very different approach now and do you think oh sorry i'll go on on, jim also do you so if you went back to those days what sort of strategies would you now do to help yourself um give these interns a better understanding of what to do like would you tell them to go and have more self-reflection would you you know that's what sort of strategies would you go about which i'm guessing you do now yeah well the difficulty of that question is that 
if I went back with my knowledge now, then yeah, I, I, I would change quite a lot. And the things that I would be talking to them about would, would be things like build a, build a plan and then, um, and then create your flexibility within that plan and to allow for flow to take place. And when I say flow, I mean things like, um, if you're so regimented that you you only ever want to work in rugby, then you close yourself to other opportunities yeah, which you can help you jump above that ceiling and and open doors further down the line. Because you have to start thinking about yourself in ten to fifteen years time, as opposed to just like what does Josh in ten years time want compared to Josh right now? They're not the same things, and and that's something that I would truly try and help them to to kind of understand. Set yourself up for the future, not self sabotage your, your future. Um, I would, I'd really try to facilitate things like the control that they have over their own pathway and their own, their own um, like future and their career. Um, and ultimately I, I, I'd really try to instill that they're the captain of their ship. I would, I would massively step back and, and try to facilitate them to come to me as a more of a supportive role rather than a bit more dictatorial like I was back then. So yeah. did you, because you were such, you were in control of them, you felt like you were in control of the whole car. You wanted to be back then. Did you let them fail or did you try and stop? Like, did you prevent them from failing or did you let them fail or? No, I'd, I'd, I'd let them fail. You let um, them fail. I, I, what, what they did at that internship, like anyone who ever worked with me, like they weren't just, they weren't just interns. Like day one, they were like pretty much assistant coaches and I gave them so much rope, but I, I was brutally honest with them. I said, look, I will be, I'll be, brutal i'll be harsh i'll be brutal but i'll be fair and i'll give credit where it's due so if you do well i'm going to tell you that was excellent you did really well and i'm going to tell you how to improve and and why and how to do it again or support you in that but if you make a mistake hey no problem what are you going to do about it and then they would tell me they made the mistake again second time now third time and you know you, you really got to start looking at, at what you're doing and, and you're why you're asking why questions then can't you yeah, exactly. Um, but it was the things that the, the non-negotiables, the things that don't cost money, you know, those things like effort, like time, like attention to detail, um, attitude, body language. Those are the things that would drive me nuts. And that would kind of, I'd often lose my, lose my rag about things like those. Don't tell me you're going to do something by four o'clock. If you're not going to get it done, come and tell me at two o'clock or one o'clock that, look, I'm going to struggle with four o'clock. So can we, can we extend it? That's, that's what I call managing your manager and being proactive. Yeah. And I always put it to them, put it to everybody that that's, that's what I want. Um, and, and sometimes people would do that and I'd think, yeah, okay, good. We're, we're getting them. We're getting there. We're mm. getting a message that's bigger than, you know, getting this program done by three, four o'clock. Cause I'd always add to, I'd always take away two extra hours so that I could always do it myself if I needed to. Yeah. So, I think the takeaway from that is, for the guys um, going on interns is just go be yourself, ask questions when you don't know. So you can then correct yourself for the next time and complete whatever task you failed before. It's, it's quite simple. It's, it's one of them, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I truly believe that there, that an intern should know exactly what they want from an internship and if they don't know then they should speak to somebody a little bit more experienced or do some research on it yeah. so that they can turn up on day one saying look here's what here's what i really want to get out of this or here's what i need to get out of this can you tell me how or they can turn up to their interview 
here's where I'm weak or here's where I want to develop. Can you tell me how you're going to support me in that? And, yeah. and they, they start to really take control of their journey and their pathway as opposed to being passive with it. It's, it's proactive because it's your career. And that's where, I think we'll probably talk about it later, but that's where this, this career blueprint comes from, which is my, the company I've set up. It's your career. You're not, no one else is going to do it for you. If you want to end up in the yes pile, and if you want to end up getting the job over, over the rest of the crowd and putting your head above the, the rest of the, the crowd, then, then you have to take responsibility and accountability for that. Yeah. And often, often the, the, the incoming coaches won't know, won't know how to do that. And with the with that, you know, the yes pile, you know, we had Adam Bishop on and he was saying, you know, he doesn't want to know about your, your dog and all those experiences. And then we had Owen on saying that, you know, you want to go to the interview saying how you can help and how you can develop and how you've changed jobs where you've been. Like, I don't know if you've been at another job. How did you what did you make a difference there? Like how in your eyes, how important is that as a because obviously you've seen CVs, how important is that for a yes and a no pile? Like what do you look for in that yes and no pile to struck off first? So the, the yes and the no pile is the, is the application process. So the, the, there's two parts, really. Like I, I kind of phrase it as like how you knock on the door. So imagine if you've got someone come and knock on your door and they go bang, 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 like that, really aggressive and angry. You're going to stand there and go, I'm not sure I want to open that door. Mm. And that's the equivalent of somebody writing a sloppy CV or cover letter. And so before you even open the door to them, you're questioning whether you should open the door or maybe you think, well, I'm not going to open the door or you, you've got a glass pane and you can see them. That's what I always think about people who've got pictures on their CV. You can see them and they can't, might, they can't see you and you think, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to open the door to this one. And then you've got a different type of knock on the door, which might be a little bit too soft. And you think you're making a judgment call about this person before you've even met them you, by what they've written. So I'll look at a CV and a cover letter and I'll say, I've been very explicit on the job application, on the, the job description, what my problems are. I want you to directly reference each one of those in your CV. If you don't do that, you're not showing me that you understand what my problems are. So you potentially could be more of a problem than a solution. I need to know that you have the solutions. If I'm asking for an understanding of GPS or, or data analysis software and tools, I want you to say, uh, worked with Catapult, worked with um, Statsport, worked with blah, 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 to create reports on dot, 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 dot. And then I'm going to go tick. So he ticks a box. I'm looking at three different sections from a CV. I'm looking at the formatting. And I'm looking at sloppy errors like spelling, grammar. Grammarly is absolutely brilliant, especially if you're terrible at spelling like I am and, and punctuation. Uh, things like, are your, are your segments aligned? How does it print out? Is it visually appealing and pleasing? Then I, I highlight those in a different color. And so I'd put like a red tab next to each of those comments. The next one is something to, anything to do with the content. So is the content directly in line with what you're employing for? and what you put on your job description, and that's making those crossovers. And then the final section relates to, are you selling yourself? So are you doing exactly what Owen and, and Adam have said, which is, um, which is- How have you helped other, other businesses? Draw a reference yeah. to how you've added value. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what gets you in the yes pile, because I, I tell you guys a story from when I was at EIS, 
I got given a pile. So my line manager at the time, he had 200 CVs sat on his desk. Literally, the stack was like a foot high. And he just went, holy shit, look at all this. Like, all right. And I was, you know what? I was actually applying for that job. And I got that one as it was. And he, he gives me half the stack. He passes them over to me and he said, all in the bin. (laughs) Yeah, you put them all in the bin, so just yours left. (laughs) Slide those to the right. He he says, right, put these in the put these in the two piles. Have they got their masters? Yes or no? So I put them into two piles, yes or no. He said, right, put the nose in the bin. Okay. Uh, he said, take take your pile now. I said, right, here's my pile, it's like half the size. He said, right, take your pile now and put them into a yes and a no, uh, two piles for UKSCA, yes or no. And he said, right, give me your yeses. I've got now a thin pile. He puts his yeses on top of his other yeses. He then takes the the, uh, UKSCA and that's now the maybe pile. He said, right, go through those, read the opening paragraph, look for spelling, grammar, alignment, um, errors. If they've got a picture, chuck it straight in the bin. And uh, he, he would literally just wave one at me. So look at it. Look at this guy. Wow. Drop it in the bin. And it, you say it's savage. Yes, it is because of that picture thing. That is savage. Yeah. But he has to find a way to go from yeah. two hundred down to five. Yeah. Mm. Or four. So I think uh, to the listeners, uh, take note. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and have it, a picture. There's, yeah, there's some great learnings from that. Um, for, for the listeners, your CV is probably not as good as you think it is. You need to have it reviewed by either A, a professional, or B, an employer. Because it, I, I'm jumping, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I believe there's four categories within this, within the profession of the types of coaches that we have. Right, the first category is a breaker. So this is kind of new terminology that I've just magicked up, really. The first category is a breaker. A breaker is someone who's trying to get into the industry. They're trying to get their first. Uh, foot they're trying to get their foot on the ladder they're trying to get that first paid job typically they'll be anywhere from maybe 20 to 23 you you don't have to be within these confines but they they're they're quite common Um, they're willing to move around the country they're willing to go and do pretty much put whatever hours and accept whatever pay is on offer so then next up the next up you've got the the survivors and the survivors, they're the ones who are just kind of trying to keep their head above the water. They, they've got a job. They're trying to climb the ladder. You might also call them climbers. They can be anywhere from like maybe typically like 23, 22 up to maybe 27, 28. They are still quite willing to move around. They're beginning to think about settling down some roots a little bit later down the line, maybe when they get into their kind of past their mid-20s to the later 20s. And um, they still think uh, the industry is brilliant. They still think it's great. And they're still willing to do everything that's required. The next up, you've got the thrivers. So they're the guys that are saying, hang on a minute, like uh, I'm, I'm a head of department or I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a, a good job. I'm, I'm leading some people. I have some staff underneath me. Um, it doesn't matter what club I'm at because, you know, that's not the priority in this, this discussion. And these guys are typically, along with the next category, they're typically the ones doing the employing. So they have a very different view of the world and the different lens that they see things through. Um, they might be, around, might be around like 20, 27, 28 plus, up to maybe 35, somewhere around that. Just ballpark figures can obviously be a little bit older. And then the final section is your redefiners. So those are the guys who are deciding that they've had enough of the industry as it is. 
that they want to have a little bit more autonomy for themselves. They want a bit more security. They're fed up with being a slave to the sport, maybe working with evenings, weekends. Now, what the reason why I've created these categories is because it became really profoundly obvious to me when I'm trying to market my product for Career Blueprint that I did some market research and and I was, I'm 36. I know I look about 26, but I'm 36. <laughs> and these, I've got absolutely no idea how a 21, 22, 23 year old thinks, but that's my target market. So I went away and started interviewing a bunch of these guys and went trying back to, to college. Create... Sorry? <laughs> went back to college. Yeah, I went back to, I went back <laughs> to study because I needed to understand how these guys operate and think their method, preferred yeah. method of communication, what's going on in their brains and, and, and what they actually feel about the industry and how valuable the, 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 the content and information can, can, can be for them. Now, the, the two guys at the other end, so you've got the breakers down at one end, you've got the, the thrivers and redefiners, let's call them veterans at the other end, like 10 plus years of experience. The guys at one end don't have a clue how the guys at the other end think because they've got totally different views of the world. I'm 36 with a kid. And I'm not that willing. Well, actually, I'm willing to move pretty much anywhere in the world. But that's, that's, <laughs> I was that's, just, say. Me. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> not everyone's the same. Typically, they've got roots. They've got family in the area. They've got their kids in school. You know, they're happy and they don't want to just ditch their job and move somewhere else because they have to. So that's why they, they, they have a different view of the world. But the guys at the other end, they'll do anything and everything. Their career is the priority. So these guys don't understand each other. Yeah. But the breakers are hoping that the veterans are going to employ them but they're not approaching it in a way that how they think yeah and then the veterans are trying to create products materials resources like we see a ton of them on the on going around at the moment they're trying to create products for the breakers yet they don't understand how they think so how are they going to market to 21 22 23 year olds when they don't think the same way I think uh, at the end of this, I'm definitely going to have to re-listen. It's like watching the film Inception. I had to watch that like five times to understand. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, um, I think it's a good, there's a real good structure going on there. Some serious learnings. Them. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think like I've gone through some of it and I feel like, you know, in the SNC world, it does get you in and churn you up a bit of hours and stuff like that. And then you do start to feel like I want a little bit more time for myself and, everything like that and all this career and a lifestyle yeah yeah definitely definitely i think you've hit it on the head there here's here's the kicker and this is this is why this is the sole reason why i created the career blueprint and i'm i'm going to be launching quite a few things around like career periodization is because when we are breakers we don't want to be so we don't want to be sabotaging us as thrivers and and redefiners we want to be setting the right the right plans in motion yeah the whole purpose of this is that you don't have to know at 21 years old, 22 years old, where you want to end up. But what you do need to do is you do need to follow some principles that are going to get you in the right direction. So you have your guiding principles and then you have your core values as a, so your core vision and your guiding principles are things like I'm fundamentally a kind, outgoing, um, generous, fun loving uh, person who always, always active and seeking adventure. That'd be my, my core principles, my guiding vision. Those, those tend to stay the same throughout your entire life. Like I could ask you guys in another five, 10 years time, what, you know, can you describe yourself? And those words would always come up. That's how other people would probably describe you as well. And then, then you kind of shift over to your vision. Now your, your personal vision changes throughout your life, but you can still think about what you might want in five or 10 years time. 
I'm sat here thinking, do I really want a huge mortgage hanging over my head? Do I want to be swapping my time for money in the same way that I am? Do I want to be working evenings and weekends? Do I want to be a little bit more flexible with where, where I work and where I live? Uh, and these things you can, you can think about at 21, 22, 23, and you yeah. can begin to set some, set some wheels in motions to, to ensure that those things happen. I think so this is where said, the personal vision and guiding principles comes from. Yeah. And I think when you said, obviously you've been all over the world doing different things and I don't even know where to start with the next question of saying just India, like what was your involvement over there? The, having a language barrier with, you know, how did you get on? So, India is absolutely bonkers, right? India is an all-out attack on your senses from not the minute you not the minute you land and step foot in, in India, but from the minute you get on a plane to go to India. I was about to say that. <laughs> so the the smells, the sounds, the the sights, the the like the, the food, like everything. It's just like the the pungent odors was just like so with, with that move to India, where would you say that it helped you in your career? Did you, would you say it's a, it's a long one? No, in India, India for me put me back on the map as a, as a person and as a coach. So when I left the rugby world, I was an absolutely broken man. I don't mind saying that. And I, yeah. and I was broken because, you know, I, I got, I was there for three and a half years in, in a really challenging environment, two great years, and then one and a half really, really tough ones. Um, and, and then towards the back end of that, you know, I was really beaten down by the, by the, some of the people I was working with um, in, in quite a, 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 an aggressive way, if you like. Um, and I needed a, an out. I needed to escape. And, and that's exactly what I did. I, I, had, I finally opened my mind to the, the, something I'd always wanted to do, which was work abroad. I remember sitting on a beach with my ex uh, at the time, ex-fiance, um, and I said, I don't want my life to be like this anymore. I've always wanted to work abroad. Like, I, I just really want to do it. I'm, I'm getting old. I want to do it. And I think I was 31, 32 at the time, 31. And she just could see how unhappy I was and how I just a shadow of the person that I, want, that I wanted to be. Um, and I finally opened my mind to working abroad. And I, um, I had three... I had three job, I had three job interviews for jobs abroad in, in a, within a week, which was India, Saudi Arabia, and Hong Kong. And wow. I had three job offers the week after. And needless to say, I chose the weirdest, wackiest, most bizarre, <laughs> most random, furthest outside my comfort zone. Um, after talking to you, I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, it was it was just absolutely crazy. But mm. honestly, it put me back on the map. It's such an amazing country. Like I, I describe it to people as the most disgusting, horrible, vile, stinking, filthy uh, country, which is the most beautiful, kindest, open colorful magical wonderful place that you could ever imagine going to in your life yeah. it's like a total contradiction and and it's just just amazing uh the the job itself was just just so what was day. your job role so uh well a bit of the easiest way to describe it there was a guy uh, who the, the company is called JSW Sports and the company we worked for was Inspire Institute of Sport. 
And this guy was incredibly rich. He was like the third or fourth biggest. They're the same ones because there's one in Saudi. Is, no, Guitar Inspire, isn't it? And Dubai. Is that the same company? No, that's Aspire. Aspire. Yeah, ah, okay. Yeah. Got you. So no, slightly different. Um, but these guys, this guy in India, he, he basically, incredibly rich, his family, and they decided to um, start investing in sport in India because they just absolutely bombed out at the 2012 Games. And um, he decided to build an institute of sport, uh, as you do. Um, alongside that, he bought a he bought a professional soccer team, football team, which um, which at that point became the best team in India. Got to the Asian Championship, Asian Cup final, which is equivalent to the, the Asian um, UEFA Cup. Yeah, and they were doing really well. They they were they were actually killing it. And um, I ended up doing some coaching for those guys and doing the rehab for, for them as well. Um, in addition, whilst we were waiting for the institute to open, I was brought on as the head of the boxing program, which again was a totally new sport for me. And I again, whilst we were waiting for the institute to open, I started working with some of their elite athletes they had, which they, they, they gave sponsorship to. And a couple of those were the, were the they're called the Pogat sisters. And they, they were kind of the, well, not kind of, they are the most famous females in women's wrestling. Um, and so much so that they made a Bollywood film about them, <clears throat> which ended up being the highest grossing Bollywood film in history called Dangal. And um, that I, I only mentioned that because I had to go through superstardom, like celebrity superstardom, whilst trying to train these these girls. And I'm talking like crowds of people gathering around, like screaming and shouting as if they're on the red carpet every time we were trying to train. <clears throat> um, and they would say to me one day, like, "Oh, I'm I'm not going to be here next week because I've got to." Um, I've I've got to go somewhere. Where have you got to go? I've got to go and promote the film. What? And the next thing you'd see them on TV with like the most famous people in India, like Sachin Tendulkar, you name it, like all these massively famous sports people, and they were all at their wedding, um, all at their their premieres and everything. Jeez. So absolutely crazy. And I, I was thinking, geez, I'd heard all the, I'd watched the film, and but I'd heard all the stories directly from them first. So it was just absolutely amazing experience. Such lovely people. Um, so anyway, we opened up the Institute of Sport eventually and we, we went around India to recruit talent from seven years old up to about 24 and we brought them all in. And um, yeah, I was, I was tasked with trying to, trying to promote them, um, trying to help them gain more medals for India. Was, that, was it mainly the boxing there or did you go into, you did a bit of return to play there as well, didn't you, in the physio side? So I did all the return to play for the football, for the football, football team. Yeah. And then once, um, once we moved over to the Institute, that it, was in a, it was six hours away. It was kind of middle of nowhere, really. So that, that, the job of the football stopped. But occasionally they'd send some football players over to, to work with me. Um, and we would, um, we would do a, a couple of, a few intensive weeks and then send them back over. Um, so it's mainly boxing then? Yeah, just with the boxing programme. And with, um, with the boxing, because, <clears throat> you know, boxing SNC is it's still a little bit back in the day, isn't it? Stuck in, in their own ways. Yeah, I don't know why I see that personally, you know, when you see like Tyson Fury train and Andy um, Joshua's a little bit better, really, but, you know, the old school Floyd Mayweather mm. and stuff like that. I also see from MMA and boxing side of you, some trainers trying to really put their boxers and MMA fighters through 
like big mentality paces and really punish them. But do you feel like you have to do the other switch to a boxer? Because at the end of the day, they are nuts to get into a ring and fight. Do you feel like you don't need to put that in, in your coaching through to the boxer? Or do you feel like you can keep pushing them and trying to make them mentally strong, even though they're a cage warrior or anything anyway? Because this is something which is a little bit, I, I would like to get into a little bit more on. Yeah, um, well, my personal opinion is that in order to be punched in the face, you you got to be a bit like you got to be a bit of a screw loose. Um, no disrespect to any combat athletes here. Um, <clears throat> so, I would say that you probably have all the mental toughness and resiliency, but there's a big difference between having it and then uh, and right. it, it naturally being there, but knowing you have it. Okay. And the other thing is that with regards to the physical side of things, the same in any sport in rugby, you, you need to know that you can go to a really dark place. It's everyone talks about it. You need to know that you can go there so that when you do, it's familiar territory for you. And we used to say in the rugby circle that the more frequently we went, I mean, we know this is misguided now, but the more frequently we went there or, or the deeper we could go into that dark place, then the better we were going to be against the opposition and the more we would know and, you know, we would look at the statistics of the last 20 minutes. If we were in a game, if we were within 10 to 15 points of a, of a team within a game, we were comfortable because we knew we could blow them in the last 20 minutes because that was the mentality that we'd ingrained. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So so did, we, so did you put, did you aim to put more mental toughness in their workouts then and their conditioning and their sh- everything like that? Or did you leave that for the boxing coaches? No, I mean, from from the boxing side of things, like in all honesty, I didn't get that far down the line. I, okay. I was in India for a year, so I didn't get that far. Would I have ever gone down that line with them? No. And the reason for that is because of the way that they were being coached from a boxing perspective. For, in my perspective, the, the role of a strength and conditioning coach is to support them in the sport. Yeah. And and the role of the SNC coach is to fill in the blanks and to and to facilitate them to continue to train it the way they need to in order to fight the way that they need to yeah. fight or that they have to. Well. Exactly, exactly where I wanted to get to. Like that's that's my that was my sort of opinion on it. Like you Spot know, like, you just see all these guys, like some coaches are seeing stuff like punt like smashing their fighters in the gym doing like circuits and wads and stuff like that. When they're boxing, they need to be strong and powerful, you know, and that's our job is to make them strong and powerful. Yeah. The bot that they'll get they will get enough conditioning from the pad work and bag work anyway. It's remained yeah. injury free as well. Mm. So, so the, 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 uh, the phrase that I really like, and I've stolen it from, I think Alex Wolf was the, the lowest, um, uh, the minimum dose. So minimum dose response. So what's the minimum amount of work I can give these people to, to get them what they need in order to achieve what they need to achieve. And, um, it's a very fine line and sometimes you push too hard. Sometimes you don't push enough, but ultimately you've got to have that synchronization with the coaches in order to truly understand what they're capable of doing. Yeah. Um, and that takes a lot of time to understand, but if you have a way to get in sync and in line with your coaches and try and categorize the types of sessions you do, you understand fully that, okay, I don't need to do any red zone because they're doing, uh, condition games or they're doing, they're doing, um, you know, five rounds of sparring or something like that. Um, so everything should be should be aligned and in sync. But in order to do that, you have to have a, a very good 
relationship with your coach and you have to really truly understand what it is they're trying to do and, and what and, and help them to understand what their training is doing. I think this ties into the next one that I've been itching uh, to ask is your time with the SAS and it ties in well obviously with the boxing and talking about the mindset but then also coming from a coaching point to um, the soldier point like you've got to have that relationship with you know their commanding officer I don't know if I'm saying that right but what was the relationship and how did you uh, battle being a coach in the SAS? Well I'll probably give the context right from the beginning. I, I, I tell this story about the kind, kind of continuum of respect. Um, so I, I left India because I wasn't happy with the way that the younger children were being trained. Mm. And I had a moral and ethical issue, which I, I, it, it kind of, forced me forced my hand if you like or i couldn't let it go so so i made the decision to leave and um i, I mentioned that because my communication at the time with the with the with the individuals involved wasn't at the level that it needed to be and i knew that moving in and, I, and again from the rugby environment I'd, I'd made some mistakes with my communication i knew in the military world that wouldn't that wouldn't fly so i created a bit of a system for myself where i, I you probably gathered from listening to this if you're still with us. I haven't bored you to death yet, <laughs> but I, I can be a little bit waffly with answers. And I always kept referring back to the military being like, you Straight know, radio, to the point. radio contact. I always mm. think like, yeah, Roger that we'll go, we'll comply uh, copy. And I'm thinking, I don't ever use more than less than like 20 words to respond. So I'm going to get away with one. Yeah, yeah. So when I moved over to the, to the military environment, I had next to no information at all. I was told that you're going to have anything up from 150 to 350 recruits to train. And I was like, right, okay. And they're like, what equipment? I said, what equipment, what space? And they said, well, you haven't got any space yet. Um, we don't know where you're going to get any and you've got no equipment because it hasn't arrived yet. I'm like, okay, cool. So challenging. And, and we, I wasn't going to know the numbers until I arrived on day one as well. So, um, when I did arrive on day one, I made this decision in my mind that of like a respect scale. So I was non-military, so that everybody begins at zero in terms of respect. Like in 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 Romania, you're you're not necessarily respected. Um, you're trusted, but you're not necessarily respected. Whereas maybe that's the other way around in the UK. I'm, I'm not too sure, but. I, I turned up and I was non-military, so that put me on minus one. Of, I'm, of course, I'm non-military, so I'm non-special forces. That put me on minus two. Yeah. I'm a contractor, so that put me on minus three. They're not too keen on contractors. They think we're all there to just earn a wedge and not do much work. I don't speak the language, so that put me on minus four. Um, so I, I'm on minus four for respect before I've even opened my mouth. So what I decided to do was use my two ears, my two eyes and my one mouth in the correct ratio and let the training do the talking. I was going to listen. I was going to watch and I was going to ask a lot of questions. I was going to, I have a tendency to, or I, in the past, I'd had a tendency to, to really, really engage in banter and like shoot people down if I, I saw an opportunity to do it. But I, I totally flipped that. And when there was an opportunity to shoot someone down, I always made sure that it was me that I was shooting down. So I showed that little bit of vulnerability there in terms of getting a cheap laugh out of people at my own expense. Yeah. 
and, and this strategy actually went down really well. I, I asked a lot of questions about people, their lives, their families, and, 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 and military guys are big into, into family. So that, that helped to build a lot of solid rapport. The most important thing I did really was, was let the training do the talking. And I knew that the, I knew that the coaching and the, the, the style of coaching, I knew that the, the, um, the results would speak for themselves and, and they did. So what, what we were, what we were doing was creating something that I'd never seen before. This project was the first of its kind in the world and um, it, it never really been done in that format. So uh, yeah, it was really kind of fundamentally important that I that had a really clear strategy and, yeah. and I used that over, over time. So when it comes to the coaching methods on physical preparation for these guys, you know, mental toughness, it's, it's a no brainer for them. They, they've got it. Um, when it comes to the physical preparation, you know, some are there mentally, but how do you get them physically prepared? Yeah, so so I kind of would and wouldn't agree with that statement in some ways. Like they're not they're human beings. They're mm. not they're not superhuman. So they have emotions, and emotions are ruled by your thoughts, and then your your thoughts affect your emotions. Your emotions affect your physiology, and your physiology affects your your behavior, and all of all of those things inter, interrelate. So. From, from that perspective, you know, they can have an argument with their, with their missus and they can come in and they're, they're, they're down. And, you, you know, it's your job to kind of figure that out and, and treat them like a human being as, as well as a, you know, they, they get treated like, they, they get treated like they're in the military and they're, you know, hard line, like, you know, no banter, no laughs, that sort of stuff, you know, from, from their commanding officers at times. So um, they didn't need that from me. They needed something different and, th and that was why it was kind of successful so the job that i was doing was twofold really so number one was we, we mainly worked with recruits so they were coming into the pipeline and they would come in so on day one we had 189 turn up and um they did an eight-week preparation course with us and the job was to physically prepare them for selection process which is 21 days so that 21 day selection if you've seen who dares wins it's basically exactly the same, but maybe a little bit more violent. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of things that they won't show on camera that they can't do to like I was gonna say that, celebrities yeah. and civilians. So there's a lot, there's a lot you don't see. Um, Which you um, did see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it was. You then know, get a bit more of a respect for what they're actually, you know, embarking. Yeah. Um, I, I never, I never had any, um, I never had a lack of respect for what they did. I always just held it in like hugely high esteem. Yeah. Um, but that 21 day selection period was actually absolutely brutal. So we had 189 go into the pipeline. Uh, sorry, check in on day one. We had 149 finish the eight week prep course, uh, enter selection, um, 89 or 87, something like that come out the other end. This is in year one. And then 55 graduate in nine months later or eight months later, we're going yeah. through the qualification course. Um, so yeah, as, as part of the, the, the thing with Romania though, this was the, the recruits and, and the, I'd set myself a goal to kind of bring human performance program. We called it HPP into the units as well. So that would be the actual operators. And, um, I set myself a goal that wasn't the actual project I was on, but I managed to, you know, do a fairly reasonable job of kind of infiltrating that as well. So we mainly work with the recruits. Now, recruits, you basically say jump, they say how, how high, and it's all yes, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. They literally, 
like they don't have a voice and i mean it's sad to say but they don't they have a number and you call them by the number and that's it um you actively don't try to learn their names you you actively are, are coming across more forcefully in order to you know play the role that they that the military needs you to play um and you find the you find the balance between that as well so those those guys the way that i describe it is and it was the same in india right you have a you have an athletic and a mental ceiling and and that was that was let's say i'll try and help people visualize it like imagine the size of your head so the ceiling where they enter is maybe at their chin height and where they needed to be was the top of their head that was our expectations for them and they their current ability or understanding of their ceiling was like in line with their nose so our job was to not only help them reach their ceiling but push their ceiling higher yeah and understand that there is another level that they need to go to in order to really be a success in this so our job over time was to raise that ceiling physically and mentally and show them that they can be more than they they're aware of they're like professional athletes is trying to take it to that extra extra like one percent level yeah, but, but a professional athlete won't know unless they've got a reference point. And mm. if you're just a person walking in and off the street, which seemingly some of these guys appear to be, then you, it, it wasn't like that exactly. But, you know, it, it's more of a cultural thing and yeah. that they haven't really had the exposure to what elite was. So when they come in and see this performance-based training and they see that in eight weeks, you know, they can, they can add like another five pull-ups to their 10 already and they can add, you know, knock two minutes off their run times and this sort of thing, they're going, holy shit. Like, I didn't know I was capable of that. Yeah. But you're also capable of like stepping from the, up to the next level, which is, which is where we want you to be. Um, so what, what happened when people started to see and hear the results from, from the recruits is back at the units, the recruits were, were going and smoking them. They were smoking them physically and the, 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 the operators were like, holy shit, like, who are these guys? These are studs. Um, and you have like different types of people. You have the ones who are ready to change and they want change, like they actively embrace it. You have the ones that are kind of sitting on the fence, umming and ahhing, they can go either way. And then you have the, you know, the bad apples down the bottom that are just like, nah, I'm not changing, that's bullshit. And those ones in the middle can be dragged down or, or pulled up. Um, so we targeted the guys at the top and, and the, that middle group, and we kind of left the naysayers alone. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's not all, everybody is a total badass as you, as you might see on TV or you yeah. might see in the films. It, it, it's not like that. You've got, it's the same as, and imagine a, imagine a rugby team, but, uh, extrapolate that over, you know, I think the, the. I can't remember the exact number, maybe 500 people. Imagine like 500 rugby players all getting together, like professional. You're going to get your moaners, your sappers, your shit trainers, your, your, your milk bags. You're going to get, your, you know, all different types of personality. Um, then you're going to get your badasses and your uber professionals and, and it's no different. So they're, they're, they're just people. So I think um, you... With as an a... extraordinary job, sorry. People with an extraordinary job. Okay. So you as a coach being in that environment, what was your biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway? It's such like a, like professional intense for mindset, um, like career, you know, what's the biggest takeaway from all of that? 
The only thing that I ever knew 100% in that environment was that everything will change. And that was the only, the only certainty. And that certainty is fundamentally based around what they have to do for a job and a living. And yeah. you, you talk about the stakes being high. This isn't about winning a championship. It's about somebody going downrange and, and deploying and going into a war zone or potentially going into a war zone. I mean, right now we're in peacetime, which is, which is obviously a great thing. But, you know, who knows how long that will last. These guys need to be able to do what they need to do to the level they need to be able to do it whenever they need to be able to do it. And they have to be combat ready and combat effective. And in order to do that, they've got to understand what that actually means. That means that instead of maybe the fundamentals of rugby, for example, we might be talking about things like dragging, pushing, pulling, carrying, but we're talking carry and load kit and, and moving over X distance at X speed and, and, you know, some real known entities that we have depending on the type of deployment. Yeah. And, and the terrain, because the stakes are just so much higher. The, you know, you, you, what's the worst that can happen in rugby? Like you lose, mm. like you lose a championship. What's the worst that can happen in the military world? You, you, you know, catastrophic. Yeah. yeah. Catastrophic. So my, my biggest takeaways are, would, would, would definitely be relating to the adaptability. Um, it, 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 100% it's their people. And, and if we treat them as, as not as people, as these robots and, you know, like action men, then some people can play that and, and others can't. Um, it's all right to say to people, is everything all right now? My, my kid's sick. Okay, well, look, leave your phone over there. If it rings, you answer it. If it doesn't ring, then are you all right to carry on doing the session? Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, thanks. Let's go. I think that's so, that's so important because we've had, you know, Owen come on and he was saying exactly the same and the same was Pete, you know, that even if you're an athlete, if you're with an SAS soldier, if you're with a general pop, they're all people. And there's all about adapting to that person, isn't it? Completely in any coaching situation, you need to adapt to that human because everyone, like you said earlier, sees you see it different to me. Ollie will see it different to you. And that's how it sort of works, isn't it? Yeah, it's the it's the classic lens of the world. And, and their yeah. lens view of the world is my, my take on it was always, what are they, am I giving them energy or am I taking it away in this session? Am I doing what everybody else does to them or am I going to do something different and expose them to something positive? Yeah. Am I going to give them a positive experience from their training session and their training? And <clears throat> are they going to be sneezers in a positive way? Are they going to spread this virus in a positive way? As in, are they going to go and say, do you know what, this HPP is actually pretty good. I'm feeling great. And my number one goal was to make them feel better, to improve something, to help them be in less pain, to help them manage their injury, to improve their sticky, their runtime that's been sticking sticky for, you know, a couple of years to, to help them to, to be better. Yeah. And it's a slow progress, but once you've got the buy-in, like they're, they're very loyal and, and they'll stand by you and they'll, they'll, they'll stick to, to what you say. Um, it's a, a really incredible, like special group of people. Yeah, and I think uh, coaches definitely listen to that. It's um, yes, you can be who you want to be for them, but you've got to be who they want you to be because you're their coach. That's what your that's your job. Oh, hey, it's the, the older I get, the, the less important I am. And ultimately, you go and work in a you go and work in a military environment. You're a drop in the ocean, and yeah. and there's no way you can turn around and say, like, you have to fight your corner. 
And I can tell you how I did that in a second. But ultimately, if they've got to go to the range to shoot, they go to the range to shoot. And if they have to, if they get told they have to do something, then, then and, and they can't train today, they've got to go and jump out of plane, then that's what they've got to go and do. But the way that I will say this to, to, to the people who make those decisions, I'll say, look, we can always adapt like the physical training. We can always cancel a session. But every time we cancel a session, every time we come away from our shared vision, our shared goals, which you, I would always establish first, we step one step away from, we move one step away from what you want to achieve. Yeah. So I can't provide you with the operator that you need and you want if we keep taking this time away. So how can we work together in order to find a solution so that I can, we can guarantee this time X amount of days per week? Because right now you, you're setting your goal at, 100% our attendance is at 50 so you're going to get 50% of what you wanted no 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 I want 100 well I'm sorry you can't have that and and I tried to frame it in a way they'd understand and that was for the you know the hierarchy and, yeah. and then you know it get, they get it a bit firmer with saying okay move anything else but you can't move HP and and that that was that was beneficial over time I think uh, moving into the last uh, couple questions can you tell our listeners about Exos and uh, what you did with them and your role with them? Yeah, so I, the, the role was with Exos. So I was a performance coach. I started as uh, employed by Exos. Um, and I, um, I kind of moved over the years. I was there for three and a half years with the Romanian Special Forces. And I ended up being like the performance manager. So by the back end of that role, I was... I created and built a train the trainer program and for, for coaching the remaining coaches to be able to take the program on themselves, which is what they've done. Now they have uh, the next step is for that to be spread to the, to the units on it in a more structured and, and uh, detailed manner. Are you still involved in that or you left it completely? Do you still help them out or bits and bobs? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um it's up in the air for now. Yeah. We say um, what we're, what they're going to be moving into what we have created is I set them up for success whilst we were there understanding that in order to make any influence in that particular environment I needed to do three things I needed to help them to rewrite their doctrine which is their legal grounding and basis for their physical training I needed to support them in their knowledge uh, by training trainers and give them the expertise to be able to uh, deliver help them deliver the training at the units and the third thing I needed to be able to do was help everybody in the infrastructure to understand what the performance space looked like in terms of facilities and um, resources so equipment and gyms etc um, those are the three fundamentals that needed to be in place and, and I was happy to be able to leave it in, in that environment the, the contract just it ended we got extended by six months but it was only ever going to be a three-year deal um, mm. And, uh, you know, we, re we really we really did absolutely everything that we could in order to to achieve our objectives. So I think everybody upon exit was was really happy with what what's been achieved and we definitely set them up for success. So the, the way that the contracting works is that you, you bill against a particular role. So once that role didn't exist, then, you know, the, the, the role with Exos didn't that no longer existed as well. Yeah, I think you Sorry. mentioned it a few times now with uh, this blueprint that you're working on. Um, can you give us a bit of uh, an insight into this sort of new uh, feature you're doing? 
Yeah, so there's there's two things really that I'm working on at the moment. Number one is the uh, the the work with Hinsa, so the little bit of corporate work and the the Formula mm-hmm. Two racing driver, and then the second thing. So that's keeping my hand in the coaching, which is obviously something really really important for me. And the the second thing is the the career blueprint. Now, the the, the problem, some of these problems will sound familiar. The, the problem, do you, do you know you know the problems where you always end up on the no pile. Or you keep ending up on the no pile. Yeah. The the problem where you you know you feel like the underdog, the you know the lone ranger. You're a little bit confused about what what pathway to take. Uh, you, you're not always crystal clear on what it is you need to do with your core competencies. You maybe don't know what the core competencies are of the industry. Things like networking, communication, self awareness, uh, experience, job specific preparation. And perhaps you're not sure when you need to be doing certain things and, and how you should actually try and structure your career to create some long-term goals. Essentially, what I've just described there is career periodization. And, and we're lucky that you guys and most of the people listening will understand what periodization is. And my question to, to anybody listening is, why, why would we build a four-year, five-year plan for an athlete who's going to an Olympic Games? Or why would we build a structure for those guys? Why would we build, build an annual plan for, some, for someone else's career when we wouldn't do it for our own? Yeah, very good point, yeah. And what happens is you make mistake after mistake after mistake, like I have done. I built this company because I've made so many mistakes in my time let me make the mistakes for you so you don't have to. Life's too short to not learn from other people's mistakes. The mistakes that I've made have, there's two types of friction. There's, there's the good friction, then there's the negative friction. And, and both of those can create some sort of scar tissue. So a good an example that you'd probably be able to visualize will be the, imagine your shoe is rubbing and, and it's creating a blister. Well, that can be good friction if it forces you to change something. So it's going to, you're going to add a change a pair of socks. You're going to change your shoes for the, for the activity you're doing. Are you going to put a compete plaster on something like that? That can be good friction. It's, it's created some positive change. You no longer have any friction. That can become bad friction when you just say, ah, sod it, it doesn't matter. I'll tough it out. Or when you just ignore it or when you crack on down that pathway or whether, when you don't notice these things. And before you know it, you've got a hole in your foot, which requires you to really step back and take some time out of what you're doing. So that can be the equivalent to physical mental burnout. That could be the equivalent to continually getting the door slammed in your face and not the door not opening. And, you know, these things are... are, are we're we're trying to create positive create a lack of scars for you so i've got really big scars that i picked up from my career which i I took down the negative scar tissue route and you know scars are cool but you don't want your whole body head to toe littered in scars You, you, you don't want that you want scars that can become positive and that can that can facilitate you to make good change and good decisions in the future and and not ones that kind of you know keep you up at night or or, you know still haunt you to this day um but essentially it's 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 for the it's for this company is created for, for for anybody who who needs a little bit more guidance to getting on the ladder or progressing up the ladder or trying to redefine what it is they're trying to do yeah so we're talking about really breaking down the the fundamentals of of this industry and the core competencies 
and, and other industries as well. It's not, I've been working with some guys in business as well. And it's, it's not just about the, the, the principles remain the same. It's about creating your own guiding principles and then your, your guiding vision. So with this blueprint, just before we wrap up, would, what were the three sort of key principles for it? For coaches that are, that are going to be coming onto it? The, the key principles will be, or what the key learning outcomes will be, is, yeah. is helping you to identify what it is you want and how to achieve it and providing you with a pathway to get there so that you end up on the yes pile and not the no pile so that your friction can remain positive throughout your career and equally so that you can set yourself up for success in the future. And and I didn't do that in lots of ways. I mean, I've turned out okay-ish, but (laughs) I didn't set myself up well when I was was younger and and I made a lot of mistakes and, and that's how I ended up being a Lone Ranger. I think that's it's not it's not bad being a lone ranger, but um, it's also yes, you can be that lone ranger, but seek out advice and help if you need it. Well, this this is why this is the role of a mentor, yeah. and, and everybody should have a mentor because they stop this scar tissue from becoming a, a deeply a, a problem. They can break down the scar tissue and help you move on, reflect more, more, more effectively to, to build your career and your pathway in a way that you're going to turn around and go, do you know what? That was a good idea. That was a good decision. And in terms of investments, you know, if, if you pay a few hundred pounds for a product or a service that helps you get a job that gets you a five grand pay rise, is that a good return on investment? It's not bad. Eh? I'd say that's a pretty bloody good return on investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh- I would say it's the like the mentor's point of view is like actually having the structure and the uh, what am I looking for the how to get out of the certain problem. So like say if you've got a problem, you can help them get out because you're not you're gonna still let them fail, I'm guessing, and let them learn from what they're gonna do wrong. But it's actually having the system to be able to okay, so how do you get out of that and you know get back up to the next level? It's a GPS. You're describing yeah. a GPS, but it it you, you're absolutely right. What's really important is that that people understand that they can take control and that they're not passive in their journey. And there's too many guys, the breakers especially, that think it's going to happen, but it's not going to fall into your lap. That there's is a rude awakening coming if you think you're going to make it in this career without an extensive network these days. You can look at Rob Pacey's, um, Rob Pacey's uh, survey he's just done. I think one of the stats was around 30% of football jobs were, were gained from advertisement. So you're competing against 70% if you're throwing your hat in the ring for things. So these these things are, are really important for, for the breakers, the thrivers, uh, sorry, yeah. the, the survivors to get their heads around. And also, I know we're, I know we're just about to dash off, but the, the final point I want to make is that the, the benefit of being a thriver and a redefiner is that my view of the world is one where you want to be as a breaker and a survivor in five or 10 years time. So I can categorically tell you the steps that you need to go on and the way in which my my group of people think but it's very difficult for you to understand that unless you are open to 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 really understanding and 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 learning about how how other people think and what they want so that's that's probably a 
a good good place to close i think that's huge mate um 100%. just want to say yeah big one to the to the young <laughs> listeners and coaches uh get your notepads out listen a few times because I know I will be and uh, I'm pretty sure Jim and Mike who couldn't be with us today uh, will be listening to this over and over so uh, thanks Josh, so much Josh yeah thank you so much for coming on for the for anybody who wants a little bit more information on anything I've been talking about the, the website will be up and running soon but the, the most of the information is coming out on uh, Instagram uh, at career blueprint and JF underscore performances I'm just transitioning over from uh, you see a little bit out on uh, honest dad on that one as well. So I'm transferring yeah. over to um, something a bit more professional, should we say? Yeah. So the guys listening, uh, we'll put um, Josh up on our Instagram as well. We'll tag him into it and uh, uh, get involved. Enjoy. Thanks Cheers. so much, Josh. Guys, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Cheers, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you were able to take something from it and enjoyed it as much as us. It would be a great help if you could hit the download or subscribe button below and share the podcast to fellow coaches, friends or athletes. 